0: for the time that we had in that we where we ended our study in the book of Hebrews we ended it as we went from thanksgiving to new years and we we referred to that everything we drew out of the book we referred to it as it's our time it's our time when we as believers can openly speak about Jesus Christ, his coming, and, and, and what he was here for. And I trust that it gave you opportunities to do that very thing. And it was our time to hope and, and our time to serve. And so that's how we viewed that, that it was our time, because we were celebrating a most magnificent thing. While we were celebrating... A most magnificent thing. Something made a little blip in the news. And it came, and I haven't been following the news as closely as I do at other times. I kind of set it aside during the season when it's our time. And uh, so I only had a cursory eye on what was happening. But there was this thing that made this blip. And now we're going to wait and see what its impact is. In that early in December... Our President Trump made the statement that he's going to move our embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, whether you're aware of it or not, every president has said he has made this commitment since 1995. Clinton's made the uh, commitment, George W. Bush made the commitment, and Obama made the commitment. They all said they were going to do this, and none of them did. And Trump said he was going to do it, and he's following through on his promise. That's interesting. This generated another anti-Israel, anti-USA vote into the UN. Nikki Haley said before the vote, we're going to be watching what happens here. We're taking names. And then after the vote, they decided that why should we be supporting the UN with so much money? And they cut a significant amount of funding to the UN and said, we're not doing this. We're not spending, sending this kind of money to send into this international body politic to then have you tell us we're wrong for putting our embassy where we choose to put our embassy. That's our privilege as a nation. And uh, so it has created a bit of a ripple. Now, among those who think this is a bad idea they would say that by recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, you basically have said that the Palestinians, it's not their capital. And they've been vying for that. Therefore, you have impacted the peace process. And progress on peace in the Middle East is going to be slowed down. Which my understanding is the Trump administration basically said, what progress in peace has been going on for decades, and we're no further along than we were. So we're going to move our embassy. Now, here's my point, friends. Please hear me carefully. I have no intention to try and tell you whether this was a good move or not. I think only time will let us understand what the implications of this is. Is it something that has lasting implications? Or is this kind of a pff, came, it went, as so many things? I don't know. I'm not going to try and be a prophet on that. I do want to raise your interest in what is happening right there in Jerusalem. Because in all of history, there is no other city like Jerusalem. So here's what I'm going to, here's the point that I'm trying to make. I'll tell you up front, I'm trying to try and remember to tell you at the back end of things and but give you a little bit of reason why in between. In light of a president actually doing what all the other presidents have been saying they were going to do since nineteen ninety five, it just kind of stirs a bit of something there in Jerusalem. So I'm saying this keep an eye on Jerusalem as you hear it in the news, as you, just, as you see something come up on the television, an article here or there, don't hesitate to read what's going on with Jerusalem. Now read with a watchful eye, read with an informed, biblically informed eye, because people definitely have their agendas about Jerusalem, and they're in conflict with each other. But I'm simply saying, as biblically literate people keep, and I on Jerusalem because it is unique. You say to me, Gary, why is it unique? And I say, funny you should ask. Let's talk about that for a little bit here. Now, there is so much to cover. The possibility literally is we could start a new series like we did in Hebrews and we could easily spend a year just discussing Jerusalem. We're going to take this morning. I just want to stir your interest so that you know, hey, maybe this is a place we should pay a little bit of attention to if you have not been paying attention. First thing I want, oh, and in mentioning that, we're going to have some long passages. There is no way we're going to be able to read all the passages I'm going to reference. So if you have a pen with you, you'll notice there's a place to write down the references, All right, in your bulletin, write down the references, come back to them later. Listen to this message on the internet again later while you're reading these references and you're getting their greater context because there is no way we can read everything is I'm just going to give you contexts for most of these references. So Jerusalem, I've said, is unique. And first, it's unique in its early entry into God's redemptive work. Genesis chapter 14 recounts for us a time in the history of Israel as a nation when they, God is just getting started working with them. If you'll recall in Genesis 12, God singles out Abram and says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Well, they're nowhere near being a great nation yet. So far, it's just Abram is all we got in this context. And in chapter 13 he gets into he, chapters 13 14 we find out about his, his nephew Lot his Lot gets into his nephew Lot gets into some trouble so he's got to go rescue his nephew Lot. And there is this there's this warfare going between four kings on one side five kings on another side and Abram enters into that fray. He winds up winning, delivers Lot, everything's good. And the king of Sodom, we read this in, in the end of 14 Beginning in verse 17, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Keterlar-Omer and the kings who were with him. So we have this reference to this one king of Sodom. Just hold on to that. Then, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, or Abram, rather, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, that is Abram, gave him a tithe of all. Abram? Paid a tithe to melchizedek now i want to first compare this with what we just saw a little bit ago in hebrews this is not a return to the study in hebrews but this will be familiar to you in hebrews chapter 7 the writer to hebrews referenced this melchizedek if you are with us you know this for this melchizedek king of salem "...priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." Now, here is the point as we compare Hebrews 7 with what we just read in Genesis 14. I said, Jerusalem is unique because it shows up early in God's redemptive work. It's referred to in Genesis 14 as Salem, but over time would eventually become known as Jerusalem. So, two chapters into the account of Abram, if in Genesis 12 he was called, by Genesis 14 he comes face to face after this victory with this guy by this priest, a king priest by the name of Melchizedek. And some 20 centuries later, it is revealed to the writer of the Hebrews that that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Is that not fascinating? See, because Christ is of a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we saw that in Hebrews. Not after the Levitical priesthood, not after this genealogy that you can trace and verify that, yes, we're Levites, so yes, we can serve in this role. He's not of that. He is of a priesthood that has no beginning and no end, no lineage. Melchizedek just shows up on the scene. And he is the priest of the Most High God, King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. He is the one who represents Christ. And is it not fascinating? I just find it fascinating. That early in the account of an event happening somewhere 2,000 years before Christ would represent him. And where does it represent him specifically? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem is unique because of its early entry into God's redemptive work. I'd like to also make a contrast by going back to Genesis 14. Again, write the verses down if you can. Just I'll do my best to keep us all aware of what else is happening there. Genesis 14, we've already referenced that the king of Sodom was a part of that whole event that was happening. Picking it up in verse 21, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Now here's the bottom line. He was trying to enter into this agreement with Abram that Abram can enrich himself out of this victory that has just been won, and he'll take a part, and Abram will take part. And you know what Abram took? Abram said, The guys who came with me, their food they can have, and their portion they can have. I will take nothing. I take nothing from you, Sodom, because... I do not want to give opportunity for you ever to be able to say that you enriched me. My God is the one who enriches me, not you. Now what I find intriguing in that, very simply, friends, as we compare and contrast, we compare the King Melchizedek. We just read about him. He was priest of the Most High God. He represented Christ ultimately in all of his glory as a king priest. Here we have Sodom. How many of you know the outcome of Sodom ultimately in Scripture? It comes heavy under God's judgment, doesn't it? A few chapters later, God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So by contrasting Sodom with Melchizedek, I believe we wind up also here with a hint as to what's going on in God's redemptive plan. Right there at that victory near Jerusalem. Right there, God's redemptive plan. We have Christ who will one day come and be the ultimate king-priest. But we also have a dark kingdom represented by Sodom, who wants to always be working its way in, enriching itself, making itself greater than God. And that theme of this dark kingdom will carry itself through, right on through the entire redemptive account. Jerusalem is unique in its early entry into God's redemptive work. And just some interesting things that are right there. Secondly, Jerusalem is unique in its repeated role in God's redemptive work. And this is where we could just literally spend an entire year looking at this. But having just one morning to do it, I'd like to throw this out. Its repeated role in God's redemptive work in revealing or being the place where the three persons of the Trinity are revealed at different times. Will you go with me on that for just a moment? 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We have an account, and uh, I'm hoping we know enough of our biblical history to know this much. When God delivered the people out of Egypt, he had Moses make a tabernacle, which is a tent, effectively. There were specific pieces of furniture we put, that were put in that tent. We dealt with that when we did our study in the book of Hebrews. We had all the kids up here. It was a movable structure, a movable place of worship. Now, once they got into the promised land, they weren't moving around anymore. David had a dream to build a permanent structure. God held him off on that and gave Solomon the privilege to fulfill his father David's dream to make a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant where God was revealing his presence. And that's what you need to understand. God said, I will meet with you above the mercy seat. And that was that most central, most holy piece of furniture that was in that uh, that in that tabernacle, and now was going to get moved into the permanent temple. Are you with me? Okay. Second Chronicles, chapter 5. I'm going to just read a couple verses leading into our text. It came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, meaning they had placed the ark in, and then I'm making a big jump, that the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So now this permanent structure, the temple, God now is manifesting his presence with the cloud there that's just filling that place and the priests have got to get out. That's what you need to understand. He's manifesting his presence. Then, chapter 6, verse 1, Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king, this is Solomon, turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor do I choose any man to be a real ruler over my people Israel. Yet, yet, I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there and he's being manifested as he he moves and takes up his residence in the temple that's the father secondly Luke chapter 2 again something that you are familiar with we just don't think of it in these terms Luke chapter 2 in verses 21 to 38, we have the, uh, some of the continuation of the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 21, When the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, a name given by the angel before he was uh, conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem... To present him to the Lord. As an infant, in fulfillment of the law, Christ was brought to Jerusalem. As was so many other young boys. In fulfillment of the law. There's nothing unusual that he was brought there. Many others were. But here's what becomes unusual. With this infant child. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And what has he just said? He has just effectively declared, being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, it has been, if he has just effectively declared that this is the Christ. This is that second person of the Trinity who was born of this Virgin Mary, and he was able to recognize exactly what was happening by the revelation of God to him, and he proclaimed it. So Christ, in his infancy, his presence on earth was declared by Simeon. And you know that the account goes on. Now there was one Anna... Picking it up in verse 36, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And dropping down to verse 38. And coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here is this prophetess. This other one with that special connection to, to God that allowed her to understand and know what was going on. Her name is Anna. She's giving this place in scripture. And she too, at Christ's infancy, declares that Messiah is present on the earth. And it took place in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19. Now we're going later. Now we're looking at, of course, the adult Jesus. And now we're seeing him just prior to that time when he is going to carry out his high priestly role. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 37, we have... What's known as the triumphal entry. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, for the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And it was ordained that on that day, as Christ entered into Jerusalem, it was ordained that he would be proclaimed as Messiah, present there in Jerusalem. And if those who were called to proclaim it did not, the very rocks themselves would speak out. That this indeed is Christ present among his people, the second person of the Trinity. Now I want to add one note while we are here. Because we're going to come back to it later. So just kind of set this aside. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as the proclamation was made that Christ is here among his people, the people just kind of blew it off. Said, this isn't the guy we're looking for. We're looking for a mighty, powerful king and leader who's going to throw off Rome. It certainly isn't this guy, this itinerant preacher. And so they blew it off. And then Jesus, here's what I want you to know. Jesus prophesies over Jerusalem that because they missed this appointed time, they would be destroyed. And in 70 AD, they were. Just hang on to that, okay? Acts chapter Two, So we've seen how the Father's presence was manifested in the temple. We've seen how Christ, the Son, the, son, the second person of the Trinity, was manifested uh, at at the temple when he was dedicated. And then later as he returned to Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 2, I want you to notice this. And, and this is just one way that we can look at all the stuff that takes place in Jerusalem, friends. It's just... Amazing where it fits into God's redemptive plan. Acts chapter 2, the disciples had been told to wait in Jerusalem, that they would become witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth. But they were to wait until the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost, Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came around them, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. These, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then Peter ultimately speaks up and explains what is happening at the end of, at the beginning of verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, Peter says... And it shall come to pass in the last days uh, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And we have Peter explaining that this is the coming of the Holy Spirit, as Joel had said. And now the Holy Spirit of God is making His presence known. And He's going to make His presence known now in the church. And He's going to take up residence in the church, in God's people, in the church. And the church is born this day. But you understand, as I've I've tried to point out, Jerusalem is unique in its repeated role in God's redemptive work. Just one way to look at it. Is how God the Father was revealed as being present there. God the Son was revealed as being present there. And now God the Holy Spirit being revealed as present. Always happening there in Jerusalem. What other city can we mark that this has been their history? So... Jerusalem is unique in its early entry in God's redemptive work. Jerusalem is unique in its repeated role in God's redemptive work. And Jerusalem is unique in its future purpose in God's redemptive work. We understand, friends, that the scriptures have been pretty clear that the Lord Jesus Christ one day will reign upon the earth. In fact, if you were with us for the study in the book of Hebrews, you will remember after he finished his high priestly role, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, a place of authority, waiting what? Till his enemies are made his footstool, waiting until that time when he rules not only over earth, but over all creation, every being of the angelic realm and every being of this earthly realm. Now in Micah chapter 4, notice this. Now it shall come to pass, this is Micah's prophecy, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Now one of the things we might understand with that when we hear these references to the mountains is that Jerusalem incorporated a handful of different mountains. One of those, perhaps best known, being Mount Zion. So sometimes you hear references to Mount Zion or Zion, it's a reference to Jerusalem because it incorporated Mount Zion among these. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See how Zion and Jerusalem are put in parallel there. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The day is coming, Micah says, that Messiah, the one for whom under the old covenant they were still awaiting, that Messiah will come and he will rule, and he will rule from Jerusalem. And his rule will go out to the nations. In fact, he will rule over the entire earth and Jerusalem will be his capital. That is the city from which he will rule Zechariah chapter 8 Zechariah chapter 8 I want to pick it up verses 20 to 23 if you want to write those down Zechariah chapter 8 And here's what we read there Thus says the Lord of hosts People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. In those days the men from every language of the nation. Shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying. Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. And there will be this central place. From which Christ rules the nations. And then of course. And I'm spending a little more time on this the future purpose of Jerusalem. Then, of course, we have this magnificent revelation uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Now, my friends, I do not know how to interpret this other than what it says. I don't know where else to go with it. But we have this account given in chapter 19 of Christ returning on a white horse. And, and bringing judgment upon the nations and uh, suppressing them all. Getting everything placed in order, if you will, for the rule that he is now going to establish. And we read this beginning in verse 4. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Who had not worshipped the beast in his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ For a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So this reign that we read about in Micah and Zechariah, where Christ reigns on earth, where we have clarity that it's going to last for a thousand years referred to the millennium, because that means a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years, verse 7, have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather from them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth. Now, this is Satan being given one last opportunity to show his hand, Okay? He's going to raise those people against Christ who do not want to be under his authority, do not want to willingly bend the knee. Up until now, they have been forced to bend the knee, but now they have an option. They can follow Satan and get out from under this. So they think. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's Jerusalem, friends. So... In the future, Christ will rule the entire earth from Jerusalem. And when Satan is given one last opportunity to show who he is and what he is about, he's going to raise up as many and as big of an army as he can, and he's going to bring them against Jesus He's going to bring them against Christ who's ruling from Jerusalem and he's going to let them know that be your own king be your own God you don't need to listen to him anymore the lie is the same lie he gave in Genesis chapter 3 he's not going to change that that is his lie and some are going to believe it that somehow I can be king and I can be God and I can rule the way I want to rule and they're going to surround the city And fire came down from God out of the heaven and devoured them, and they will be destroyed at the end of the thousand years. Well, what happens then? Last scripture, Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And now new Jerusalem comes. You'll recall, if you were with us, In the study of the book of Hebrews, the writer said we look for an eternal city, for the holy city. And that holy city is identified as the recreation of Jerusalem. So do you see it, friends? This is just one way to look at this. Jerusalem is unique in its early entry into God's redemptive work. Jerusalem is unique in its repeated role in God's redemptive work. Jerusalem is unique in its future purpose in God's redemptive work. There's nothing else. No other city like the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to wrap it up with four quick thoughts. One, Jerusalem is where Christ is revealed as prophet, priest, and king. All three of his magnificent roles. Prophet, Jerusalem, You will be judged because you did not know the day of your visitation. I said, we're going to come back to that prophecy. He prophesied over them, and in 70 A.D., they were destroyed. Priest. Do you remember the book of Hebrews said to us that he was crucified outside the city? That was his high priestly role, but it was right there. He wasn't, wasn't crucified in that temple. It was outside on the city's outer limits. Because his high priestly role was different than that of those who were of the temple. And he was going to be an eternal high priest because he was going to be raised the third day. But that's where he carried out his priestly role. And having been raised to the father, he then sat at his right hand. Till his enemies are made his footstool, which brings in his kingly role. Which we read about in terms of him now. How he's going to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Prophet, priest, and king. All identified with Christ in Jerusalem. You know any other city like that? I told you, it's unique. Keep an eye on Jerusalem. Two, that being the case, you can just imagine that there's going to be a spiritual battle over that land. Can you not? Because what is the goal of the evil one? I will be like the Most High. The dark. The goal of the Dark Kingdom is to establish its own authority, to usurp God's authority, and to establish Satan. At the pinnacle. So you can imagine there's going to... If this is the capital, you can imagine that there's going to be a spiritual battle over that city. Paul, have you got a picture for us? I just want you to see one thing. This is the Dome of the Rock. This is located right on the ground where the temple stood and will yet again stand. Now, I found it very interesting in referencing this message and asking... Um, Evan, a couple of questions about doing this message. You know what he said to me? He said, if I'm understanding you correctly, Evan, most of his growing up, he just thought, what's the big deal with Jerusalem? It's just a Muslim place. It's just a Muslim city because you always see this image identified with Jerusalem. But friends, I I want to make it clear right now, because if you were in discussion with people and they say, hey, they're taking the Palestinians' capital, I want you to understand that this whole worldview of Islam didn't even start until the late 600 A.D.s. And we are talking millennia after this stuff that we've been talking about. God had identified Jerusalem as his city, as the place where he would put his name some 2600 years prior to this whole islamic thing even being on the earth so what i want to make it clear particularly to you young people do not identify in your thinking that jerusalem is somehow this muslim city and why are we messing with it jerusalem is the place where god said he would place his name long before Anything known as Muslim even existed. And when I say long before, again, we're talking millennia before. Not years, not decades, not centuries. Millennia. Okay. But there's a spiritual battle. Why would we expect anything different than the evil one would try and and usurp that authority? Thirdly, I am not saying Trump's move is going to usher in the end time. But I am saying Trump's move is a good time to remind ourselves why we should keep an eye on Jerusalem. God's not done there. Fourth thing. Maybe we should go there together one day. I'd like you to think about the possibility of going there in 2019. I'd like you to talk to me if it interests you. It'd be fascinating to see it firsthand. Father, thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you are great and mighty. Thank you, Lord, that you have clearly identified in your word a role of Jerusalem in your redemptive work. It's past, it's present its future father may we may we keep our eyes upon it keep our eyes on Jerusalem and as your word says may we pray for the peace of Jerusalem Lord we pray for our leaders who are making a bold decision I don't understand Lord how it relates to what you are doing but it is a bold decision and I pray for our men as you tell us to pray for our leaders I pray you will give them wisdom from on high. A wisdom that comes from you as to how to move in these days ahead. Lord, thank you for the magnificence of your redemptive work. In Jesus' name, amen.